Good morning. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge Allegra Collins. To my right is Judge Jefferson Griffin. To my left is Judge Michael Stading. We welcome Mr. Roderick McFarlane as our clerk and Officer Richard Remillard as our Deputy Marshal. Thank you both for being here. We have one case on the calendar today. It is number 22743, Nation Star Mortgage versus Melarano. All right. Uh, counsel for the appellant, would you like to reserve some time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor, five minutes. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. You may approach. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Kurt Hauser. I represent the defendant's appellants in this case, Mark Melarano and his wife, Wendy Melarano. The trial court committed reversible error in this case in granting summary judgment to the plaintiff because the plaintiff has failed to prove it acquired the rights in the note that it is seeking to enforce to foreclose my client's property, and because there are genuine issues of material fact concerning the provenance and validity of the allonge to the note. I will address both points, but I first want to address plaintiff's argument that the Melaranos are attempting to skirt their obligations and believe that their obligations to pay their mortgage have been excused, which is untrue. I believe it's important for the court to understand how we got here and why the Melaranos have not paid their mortgage loan since November of 2009. Mr. Melarano originally took this loan in 2006 in order to buy out his sister's 50% share of the property um, that they inherited from their mother. In 2009, after the economy downturn and Mr. Melarano's business was suffering, they realized they weren't going to be able to make the mortgage payments at the level that existed under the existing note. So they contacted their then servicer, whose plaintiff's predecessor in this case, Aurora Loan Services, to request a modification. Aurora, in, Aurora advised them that in order to qualify for HAMP modification, which was the modifications in existence at that time, that they actually needed to stop making payments on their mortgage. They had to be in default. So they actually did what they were instructed to do by their loan servicer, which was stop making payments on their mortgage. Um, they knew they weren't going to be able to make them anyways, but they were instructed to stop. So they actually got a default, which is the November 2009 default in this case. So they stopped after, making, after not making payments for multiple months. They were then advised by Aurora Loan Services that they qualified for the HAMP modification, which was a modification of the reduced monthly payment under what they call the trial period payment plan, so TPP as it's called. And what the TPP is, is it's a three-month period of time in which they pay reduced monthly mortgage payment. And after the three months, after you've made those in a timely fashion, you're then accepted for the HAMP modification at that lower monthly mortgage rate for the remainder of the, of the loan as it's modified. So they did that. They defaulted as they were instructed to do, didn't pay for multiple months, got the TPP agreement saying they could do this, made those three payments in a timely fashion. And at the end of those three months, Aurora reversed its position. They sent a letter to, to Melarania saying, we're not going to modify your loan now. You're not going to qualify for HAMP. They did some additional calculations apparently and said that we're not going to do this. So then the, the Melaranos attempted to continue to pay at that lower level, the TPP payment level, which is what they could afford to pay. Um, it was a significant reduction in their monthly mortgage payment. But, but Aurora just simply sent the checks back. They just returned the checks to them, didn't even accept them for a partial payment. So my clients realized this was just futile. They couldn't pay the higher rate under the note. The TPP, which they told they were going to qualify for, was all of a sudden rejected. So they were just, they had, they just stopped making payments. So then in late 2010, again in the same year, Aurora filed the first power of sale foreclosure, which is referenced in the briefs. <clears throat> and in that power of sale foreclosure, the discovery process, that's when the issues with the endorsements of this note came to light. So proceeding forward through that first power of sale foreclosure that Aurora brought, uh, the clerk entered an order of sale in favor of Aurora, which was appealed by the Melaranos for a hearing de novo in front of Judge Judge Bridges. He held that hearing in May of 2012, and then on June 28th of 2012, he issued his order dismissing the power of sale foreclosure, the first power of sale foreclosure, because he held that Aurora had failed to provide sufficient evidence that it was the holder of the note, and that it had provided no evidence that it had the authority to enforce the note because of discrepancies that existed between the endorsements on the note and the endorsements that were required by the LMT 2006-4 trust, which was the Securitized Mortgage Trust, 
which Mr. Melarano's loan had been sold to. And so that trust agreement sets forth specific requirements for how the, the note is to be transferred and endorsed. Those endorsements weren't there. So Judge Bridges found that because those endorsements weren't there that were required by the trust agreement, as well as issues with the provenance and validity of the allonge, including that the allonge has two hole punches, the original note to which it's attached has no hole punches, there are multiple staple holes in it, and then as well that when Judge Bridges asked counsel for Aurora at the hearing, is this allonge an original or is this a photocopy, counsel for Aurora represented to the court that it was a photocopy that it was not an original document. So based upon all of that, Judge Bridges held that this allonge to the note is not actually an allonge, can't constitute an allonge, and didn't authorize Aurora to have any power to enforce this note. And so he dismissed the case. So at that point in time, my clients were still not paying, and, and the reason they weren't paying at that point in time is Aurora had come forward saying, we have a right to enforce this note, but yet they couldn't actually prove it in court. The judge, judge kicked it out. Judge Bridges said, you can't enforce this note. You haven't proven that you have authority to enforce this note. So my clients, for lack of a better term, had won in terms of who, who they had to pay this mortgage to. So they continued to not pay. Moving forward three days after Judge Bridges' order on July 1st of 2012, and the timing is just a coincidence because there was already pre-existing agreement between Aurora to sell their entire book of business to plaintiff, in this case, NationStar. So three days later, the note was sold to NationStar. My clients obviously received correspondence from NationStar to, to pay, but they took the position of Aurora couldn't prove that we had a duty to pay them. We're not going to pay you. There's no difference here. It's the same, it's, lack of better words, it's the same party or it's someone who's just assumed the rights of what the other party had. Nothing's different. Just, so they did. Just so that I'm clear, nothing about Judge Bridges' order had to do with the fact that there was either pending or had been a sale to NationStar. That was afterwards? Correct, Your Honor. It was three days after. And again, there was, a, there was an agreement that had been working on for probably months between Aurora and NationStar to sell their entire book of business to NationStar. So they're, un, yes, unrelated. Um, but so NationStar took over the, the mortgage. Um, my clients didn't pay. Um, and again, they took the position that there was no difference between Aurora and NationStar since they had just assumed what the rights were of NationStar. So that, then after not paying in February of 2013, NationStar, the plaintiff herein, filed a second power sale foreclosure under Chapter 45. We went to hearing on that before the clerk of court. The clerk of court dismissed NationStar's power sale foreclosure for the same reasons that Aurora's was dismissed, that they didn't come to court with any evidence different than what they had shown Judge Bridges, that they had any power to enforce this note. Um, the clerk agreed that all they did was assume the same rights of what Aurora had. And Aurora had just been stated by Judge Bridges to say they had no rights. So the clerk dismissed it. Nation Star appealed for a hearing de novo. We had a hearing de novo in front of Judge Caldwell. But ultimately, Judge Caldwell didn't rule before the plaintiff in this case withdrew their second power of sale foreclosure. Um, because In re Lux was issued by the Supreme Court in 2016, Supreme Court of the state in 2016, and In re Lux holds that the, the findings of a Superior Court judge in a hearing de novo, because it's, it's still a Chapter 45 non-judicial foreclosure, that those rulings don't constitute race judicata or collateral estoppel. And therefore, that the, the plaintiff in a power of sale foreclosure, or the bank in a power of sale foreclosure, can withdraw, not take a dismissal under Rule 41, but simply withdraw their, their, their uh, power of sale foreclosure and file a judicial foreclosure as they've done here to, to attempt to pursue their rights that way. So that's what happened. Um, Judge Caldwell never ruled um, and they, they took the dismissal in December of 2017, filed this case in May of 2018 to attempt to pursue their rights here. And again, Judge Bridges' order in that doesn't necessarily constitute race judicata or collateral estoppel, but it also doesn't obviate his findings of fact or his conclusions of law. They might not be binding, but they exist. So that's why my clients had not paid because including through May of 2018 when this action was filed, again, there had been no finding by any court of law that any bank which was attempting to enforce this note had the authority to enforce this note. They'd simply been, they had lost every time in court. So my client's position was, 
we shouldn't have to pay this because they can't prove that we actually owe them the money. Um, it's not that they can't pay, it's not that they won't pay. And in fact, anecdotally, it's not on the record, but anecdotally, my clients have money set aside to help satisfy this mortgage. Um, so they're, during the bill, they have the ability to do so, but up and until Judge Edie Williams' order in this case in October of 2021, which obviously we're on appeal for here today, no one had, no court of law had told a bank that they had a right to foreclose or to enforce this note, which is what needs to be done to foreclose. Um, Obviously, they disagree with that ruling because we're here on appeal today, um, that NationStar has a right to enforce this note. But that's basically why we're here and why they haven't paid since November of 2009. So this is a judicial foreclosure case. There is a limited body of case law in North Carolina on judicial foreclosures. But that body of law is controlling in this case. And that body of law- before, before you get into some of the analysis, if, so if <clears throat> working from the back forward, if, if not NationStar through this long line, like who would they owe money to them, if not them? Well, Mr. Melarano in his deposition in this case acknowledged that he owes the money to First National Bank of Arizona, which is who he signed the note to. So he actually testified in his deposition that, yes, we owe the money. We know we owe the money, but we owe it to First National Bank of Arizona at, at a minimum because that's who I signed the note with. But in order for a bank to, to prove that they have the right to enforce it, they obviously have to have the legal right to enforce that note, which no one has, has been able to show to this up and until Judge E. Williams's order um, that they had a right to enforce that note. So that's essentially, it's going to be owed presumably to somebody, but someone has to be able to, to show up and, and have an order to say, yes, we are in fact the party who is entitled to receive this because legally we have that right. Um, and until Judge Edie Williams was ordered in this case in 2008, 2021 for 9 to 21, to 09 to 21, no court had been able to say that either Nation Star or Aurora had that right. And, and as of yet, FNBA has not come forward saying that, that we're owed money, correct? Correct. It's my understanding FNBA no longer exists, Your Honor. So, so. But the, but the note has been has attempted to be endorsed over and assigned to additional parties, but they haven't been able to prove that they have a legal right to do so. So that's where we are. So, um, so but the limited body of law in North Carolina that I was that was kind of ready to discuss it provides that the summary judgment in this case was improper. Um, the Supreme Court in this case in U.S. Bank versus Pinckney. Supreme Court in North Carolina, I should say, in U.S. Bank versus Pinckney in 2017, which was a judicial foreclosure case, discussed the procedural aspects of what a judicial foreclosure is. And it's essentially an act on the note, and an action on the note to enforce the note to obtain a judgment on the debt. And then in conjunction with that, a decree to foreclose so that you can then sell the, the bank and then sell the property to satisfy the judgment on the debt. And just so that I'm clear, the exact same documents that were at play before Judge Bridges are the exact ones that are in play here. Correct, Your Honor. And it's still a copy of the Allonge, or is it a, the original? That's a disputed, that's an issue that's of fact that, that we argue a jury should decide, Your Honor. So um, the, uh, I will represent that the defendant in this case, the, their uh, representative at court, uh, in the I should say in the 30B6 deposition, um, testified that it looked like an original, um, but he couldn't testify that it was an original. There's an affidavit from a gentleman named A.J. Law that they have provided in this case, who's a representative of Nation Star. He says it's, it's an original, but I don't know if he's actually ever set his eyes on it. I, I would argue that's essentially his, his statement is essentially hearsay, but uh, that's either way. So that's an issue of fact that we contend that, that a jury should decide. Um, but in Pinckney, the Supreme Court also said that in addition to the, to the plaintiff's right to attempt to enforce the note and get a decree of foreclosure, that the defendant is entitled or the borrower is entitled to defend the action, such as raising evidentiary objections and testing the legal sufficiency of the bank's case, which is exactly what the Malaranos have done here. This is an action that the plaintiffs are pursuing pursuant to their assertion under the UCC 3-301 that they are either a holder or a non-holder in possession with the rights of a holder. With regard to a holder status, the Supreme Court of this state held in the Econo Travel versus Taylor that, quote, to bring suit on the instrument in his own name, the plaintiff must first establish that he is in fact a holder. 
In Ray Bass, the Supreme Court in 2013 held that when the party in possession is not the original holder, if the instrument is payable to an identified person, transfer requires endorsement by each previous holder. This court in 2021, in the unpublished opinion in Wilmington Savings Fund, held, and I quote, when an instrument has been negotiated multiple times, the last transferee is a proper holder only if the instrument shows a proper endorsement by each previous holder. This court also in Livestore Bank versus Mingo in 2014 held that, quote, as evidence that a plaintiff is a holder of the note is an essential element of a cause of action upon such note, the defendant was entitled to demand strict proof of this element, which is exactly what the Melanonios have done here. They're, they're demanding that they, the plaintiff strictly prove that, that these endorsements are in fact valid endorsements of all previous holders. The, in addition to the case law, the UCC um, states that any provides defenses to a power to or, or a right to enforce under 3301. 3301 is subject to the defenses of 3305. And 25-3-305 sub A sub 2 um, holds that a right to enforce the obligation of a party to pay an instrument is subject to a defense of the obligor that would be available if the person entitled to enforce the instrument or enforcing a right to payment under a simple contract. Therefore, the plaintiff in this case, NationStar, must prove that it acquired First National Bank of Arizona's rights to enforce this note, because in essence, it's standing in the shoes of a simple contract between my client and First National Bank of Arizona. Can you, can you do me a favor? Can you point me in the record where the allonge is? What, what record site, the record site? For the allonge? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, you know. Your Honor, I don't have it here at my fingertips. I can get it to you. I'll, I'll point it out in the right. in the record I when I have it in my rebuttal time. I should have had it bookmarked, <laughs> but I don't. And I apologize that I don't have it myself bookmarked, Your Honor. Um, but the so th they need to prove that they basically are essentially standing in the same shoes as First National Bank of Arizona, and because they acquired the note from Arizona and are not actually First National Bank of Arizona, they must prove that they acquired the right to enforce note. Not only that they obtained the note, but they actually acquired the right to enforce it from First National Bank, of, from Aurora, because of the settled law in this jurisdiction, which is more than a century old, the Nemo Dot Doctrine, that you can't obtain any greater right in an instrument than what your predecessor, your transferor, had. And plaintiff acknowledges that in this case. In, in their discovery in this case, they've said that, yes, they acquired no greater rights in this note than what Aurora had. So that's the case law that, that's applicable and controlling in this case. And that case law shows, again, that the summary judgment in this case was improper. Um, this controlling law, as I stated, strictly requires, in North Carolina, requires that a plaintiff strictly prove that it is the proper holder of the note by showing that the note was properly endorsed by each previous holder. We will rely on our briefs for the arguments that North Carolina law requires the missing endorsements that aren't in place on this note for, that are required by the LMT 2006-4 trust. Um, and that summary judgment was improper because they haven't proven that, that, there was, that this note was endorsed by each previous holder in accordance with the trust agreement. I'll, I'll leave that to the briefs because of the limitation on time. But I also want to add that the federal case law that the plaintiff has cited in its brief and has exclusively cited federal case law is inapplicable in this case because, first of all, it, it's federal case law, which isn't binding on this court. And second of all, every single case that they cite that addresses the issue of, of the endorsements on the note all arise from jurisdictions other than North Carolina. None of it approaches or even interprets or even discusses any of the case law that I've just pointed out to this court that's controlling in this case. It's all out of state. It's all different jurisdictions and how their states interpret the law that the courts, that the federal courts have chosen to interpret for those states in, in diversity of jurisdiction cases. But even if we set that argument aside with regard to the missing notes, the missing endorsements as required by the trust agreement for LMT 2006-4, just setting that aside for the sake of argument today and looking at the endorsements that we actually have in this case, those endorsements alone show that there's an issue of fact as to whether the note has been properly endorsed and whether the plaintiff has inquired any authority to enforce this note 
which again, if there's issues of fact, renders summary judgment by the trial court improper. As mentioned, Mr. Melarano signed this note with First National Bank of Arizona. First National Bank of Arizona endorsed it on the allonge, I apologize, I don't have the reference for, uh, on the allonge to First National Bank of Nevada. Yeah, I see it's on page 257, just there are no signatures, right? I mean, it's all typewritten. There are, that may be one that's referenced that, that Judge Bridges had in his order. There are, it, there are signatures, electron, there are stamp signatures okay. apparently um, on the actual document, but um, again, Your Honor, I'll find a reference for you okay. at my level. Um, but so that allonge contains an endorsement from First National Bank of Arizona to First National Bank of Nevada contains a second endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora Loan Services. And the other endorsement that exists now in this case that's present is an endorsement on the original note in blank from Aurora Loan Services, presumptively done when they assigned the, the rights in this note and, the, and their note to plaintiff in this case in 2012 with the transfer of the assets. So those are the endorsements that, that exist. But the evidence in this case is undisputed that Aurora Loan Services obtained its rights in this note and in this loan from First National Bank of Arizona. They advised Mr. Melarano twice in writing in 2006 and again in 2011 that they acquired their rights from First National Bank of Arizona. But the endorsement that Aurora has on the note is from First National Bank of Nevada. It's not from First National Bank of Arizona. The plaintiff has testified in its deposition that it has no information about this note at all prior to when it was sent to its counsel in this case. And it also stated that it has in its deposition that it has no information from Aurora about any of the endorsements, whether on the allonge or this endorsement in blank that Aurora put on the note presumptively in 2012. The record is devoid of any evidence that First National Bank of Nevada was the holder of this note at any time, that had the authority to, enforce, to endorse the note at any time, or that Aurora obtained any rights from that endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora, or that Aurora, in fact, obtained any rights in that endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada. Does that bank still exist? Your Honor, I believe that it does not exist either. I think they were both subsumed, um, but I, I, I and I know that's referenced, I believe, in, in Judge Bridges' order, but I don't believe that exists either. Um, so Aurora acquired the, the rights in the note from First National Bank of Arizona, which is undisputed in this case. But yet the endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora is what shows up on the note. Therefore, according to the law that this court issued in Wilmington Savings Fund in 2021, that endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora is not a proper endorsement by a previous holder because all the evidence is that they obtained their rights from First National Bank of Arizona, not from First National Bank of Nevada. So that endorsement is not a proper endorsement by the previous holder. It's simply, there's no evidence that it is. There's no evidence that First National Bank of Nevada ever had anything with this note other than the fact that they show up on this one endorsement on the Solange, but there's no evidence that that Aurora obtained any rights in this agreement or obtained this agreement or obtained this note from First National Bank of Nevada. So that evidence in itself also rebuts the presumption that Enray Bass put forth and that also is in the UCC that an endorsement is valid and authorized. Um, because if the undisputed evidence is that Aurora obtained their rights from First National Bank of Arizona, but yet this note is from First National, this endorsement is from First National Bank of Nevada. Again, it's not a, it's not a proper endorsement by a previous holder. So if, uh, if First National Bank of Nevada came into court and said, we obtained these rights from First National Bank of Arizona, would, would this allonge support that? I believe it would, Your Honor. So if, is it simply just a matter of saying who they got their rights from? Because if you've got rights that go from Arizona to Nevada and then Nevada to Aurora and then Aurora to NationStar, isn't there at least track there that the rights have followed the proper course, regardless of who you claim you got them from? That would be correct, Your Honor, but there's no evidence of that in this case. Okay. And they haven't provided any evidence of that in this case. And like I was saying, the endorsements 
because it isn't in compliance with North Carolina law, th that you can't say that that's a proper endorsement by a previous holder because Aurora has all the evidence from Aurora is that they obtained this right and this note from first from Arizona. From Arizona and not from Nevada. Even if the Alliance says they get it from Arizona through Nevada, that doesn't work. Yes, but it, 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 it doesn't go in that transact. I mean, they, they, it runs through Nevada regardless. I mean, they, the endorsement is from Arizona to Nevada, mm -hmm. Nevada to Aurora, mm -hmm. but there's no indication that Nevada, there's no evidence that's ever been provided, no statements that's ever been provided, no affidavit, no anything that says that National, First National Bank in Nevada ever had this note or had the rights in this note or had the authority to endorse this note. And Aurora state, states undisputedly that we obtained these rights from Arizona, which is who my client signed this, this note with. You have, you have five minutes. I see I have five yeah. minutes. I'm, I'm running into my time, uh, clearly within my time. Um, but it, because of the Nemo Dot Doctrine, if I could just continue a little bit and I'll just obviously have less time for my rebuttal. Um, there's no evidence that they actually obtained any authority from this, which is exactly what Judge Bridges held all the way back in 2012. Again, that's not race judicata or collateral estoppel, but they haven't shown that they have this right from First National Bank in Nevada. We rebut the presumption by, show, by saying that this endorsement is, the evidence is not in conformity with North Carolina law, that they have to show that it's been endorsed by all previous holders. And under N. Ray Bass, that shifts the burden back to the plaintiff to prove that this endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora is in fact valid and authorized. And that presumption has not been rebutted. They have not, or that, that sh burden shift of burden, burden of proof has not shifted. They have not done anything to enforce that. They have not obtained any knowledge. And in fact, have testified that they don't have any knowledge about any of these endorsements or any knowledge about the chain of custody of this note prior to their counsel receiving it. So I will obviously, I want to reserve my time. I will just save the remainder of my time for, uh, for rebuttal unless there are any further questions and rely on my briefs for the remaining argument. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Kyle Deek. I represent the plaintiff and the appellee, in this case, Nation Star Mortgage. Your Honor, this case presents, I think, just the fundamental question of whether or not my client, having succeeded to the debt at issue in this case, can proceed to foreclose and realize upon its security interest in a property for a debt that admittedly has not been paid in nearly 15 years at this point. Um, as I sat here and, and listened to plaintiff's argument, I think my high school English teacher would be uh, pleased with me that, that it reminded me of the famous phrase from Hamlet, but instead of the lady, it would be the man doth protest too much methinks. Because for the first 12 minutes of counsel's argument, he went on to explain why his client has not paid the debt since, due and owing since November 1st of 2009. The, the irony cannot be lost here that in setting forth a majority or a large part of his argument in conceding that his client hasn't paid the debt that they admittedly, undisputedly entered into in April of 2006, the issue becomes one of a, a legal technical issue that they're trying to put forth before this court that they've argued for years and years, over a decade now at this point, and I think is of, of frankly, the, the wrong legal uh, importance in the case. What do we know factually that's undisputed without any material facts in the case? We know, as counsel said, that his client entered into a, a note and a deed of trust in April of 2006. We know that shortly thereafter, they were unable to pay, undisputed. We know that they went into default. Ironically, or interestingly, Counsel's argument with regard to all of the reasons that he set forth to try to show that his client has not tried to avoid his obligations finds itself nowhere in briefs in this case. So you understood all of this when you purchased this, however, correct? 
it was in litigation, it had been litigation, and it hadn't been paid. Correct. So we're not disputing you that, right? Well, no, we're not disputing it hasn't so been paid. So we just want to figure out whether your client has the ability to. Correct, and that's the, that's the only issue. So okay. the only issue before this court is the issue that they've contended, which is whether or not my client has the ability from either a holder status or a non-holder with rights of a holder in possession under 25.3-301 to proceed with foreclosure in this case. And so uh, fundamentally, what do we know from an issue of undisputed fact? We know, and Your Honor referenced or asked the question, where is the copy of the allonge? If you look at page 524 of the record, Your Honor, uh, the note actually appears at page 521 and 524 of the record. We know that what was presented to the trial court, to the superior court at the hearing in this case, was the original note. How do we know it was the original note? Because it was tendered to the court. If you look at the transcript that's filed with this court of the hearing that was held before the Superior Court, on pages 7 and 9 through 10 of the transcript, we see that Counsel for Nation Star provided the original note to the court. The court examined the original court during the course of the proceeding, didn't have any question with regard to the fact that it was an original note, originally signed, originally endorsed with regard to, to the allonge. We know what the allonge shows. We know that the allonge shows that it was endorsed from First National Bank of Arizona to First National Bank of Nevada. It was then endorsed from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora Loan Servicing, and we know that Aurora then endorsed it in blank, becoming under the UCC, under Chapter 45 of the uh, UCC North Carolina bearer paper, and my client presented at hearing that it was the bearer in possession of the paper entitled to enforce it in the foreclosure proceeding. We know all those facts. They're undisputed facts. They were tendered to the Superior Court. The Superior Court did not take any issue with those facts and proceeded to allow the foreclosure to proceed forward. We know also in the face of those facts, counsel has come forward with a number of arguments. The first of which is this argument with regard to the lineage of those endorsements that appear on the face of the note in the launch. And counsel has argued in brief, briefly here before the court, that there was an improper lineage of endorsements set forth on the note. And they argue that under the trust agreement, that the note should have been endorsed to the Lehman Mortgage Trust, and then eventually to Citibank as the custodian on behalf of the trust. Uh, they argued here this morning in passing that the case law that we rely upon is in opposite. It's federal case law. They actually went to the extent of arguing that it's not North Carolina case law. I would dispute that. If we look, there are any number of cases to support the proposition that that argument is of no consequence and should be of no consequence to your honors. If we look at the cases cited in brief, we look at the Sprouse case, which Coincidentally, is a North Carolina case, Judge Whitley, North Carolina Bankruptcy Court in Charlotte, Western District. If we look at the McGee case, again, a North Carolina case, Middle District of New York. We can also look at the Wolf case. We can look at the Grenadier case. All consistently standing for the proposition, which has universally been held throughout this country, that a borrower, defendant in this action, but a borrower cannot come in an attempt to create an issue of fact with regard to endorsements on a note by trying to argue that the endorsement lineage from a trust agreement of which they are not a party and have no rights in can somehow create an issue of material fact that would allow them to contest a foreclosure. The law is settled, it is clear. Counsel in brief or before this court this morning has not cited to one case that would dispute the finding of Sprouse, of Wolf, of Grenadier, of McGee. And again, two of those cases that I cited specifically are North Carolina cases. The reason for that is, is, is fairly simple. It's that the courts have consistently held that we don't allow a third party interloper to come in and contest contractual rights in a trust agreement because fundamentally the underlying obligations of that party haven't changed. The Melorongo's obligations under the note have never changed. They still have the obligations to make the same payments as when they enter into the note. That is not affected by the trust agreement and whatever agreement was had between the parties to the trust agreement. 
And so if the parties to the trust agreement have an issue with regard to how the endorsements were done on the note, they are free to argue amongst themselves to come in before this court or any court that they want and make that argument. They're not here, they haven't made that argument, and that argument is not before the court, and they don't have standing, frankly, fundamentally, to make that argument before this court. So, isn't the danger, though, if you've got arguments between parties to the trust agreement about who has the authority to enforce it, that the Melorano's can then be on the hook for two parties coming after them, and that's what we're trying to avoid, so. Well, so I would agree with you in part, right? That is an issue that has been cited in those specific cases that I referenced to you, right? But that is the rare exception when a party like the borrowers in this case can come in. When you have two competing interests saying, listen, pay me, no pay me, okay? Absent evidence of that, what the courts have said is you don't have standing. That's the limited exception in those cases where the courts have found a borrower does have standing to try to contest the lineage of the endorsements by virtue of invading a trust agreement. Okay, so if you don't have two competing parties come in at the same time, one party comes in and tends to enforce it, does enforce it, and then another party comes in, who's their action then against? The Melorano's again? I'm sorry. I mean, it makes sense to me if you've got concurrent parties who are both claiming that the Melorano's owe them. But if you have one party who enforces it and then another party who comes in at a later time, doesn't seem to me they're judicially stopped from attempting to enforce it, they again go against the Melorano's. There would be, again, there would be nothing to enforce, and I'm having a hard time following, and I apologize, Your Honor, your scenario, but I think factually, I'm thinking back to factually in this case, we have absolutely no evidence of any other party coming in. In the decade plus length of the litigation this has come in, to suggest. Okay, so let's say that in this case, you're allowed to proceed, but then First National Bank of Nevada all of a sudden shows up. I think that would be a different issue, but that's not the issue before this court, and that's not the facts before this court. Okay, well, I'm trying to determine standing to bring this, so if that's a possibility, it seems to me that they have standing at least to bring this action, or at least to defend it this way. That the Melorano's have standing? In the absence of any evidence before this court that another party is trying to come in and collect against them for this debt? That would go contrary to every case that's out there, Your Honor, and that I've cited to this court with regard to that issue and that question. Again, the issue has been clearly settled, we think, through the cases, and again, I come back to the facts of this case. In the decade plus status of this litigation, knowing this argument, this is not a new argument, Your Honor. Counsel or his clients have not once at any point come forward and said, well, this party is trying to enforce it against me, or that party is trying to enforce it against me. There is absolutely no evidence in the record, and there has been no evidence in this case, that any party aside from my client and its predecessors have attempted, Aurora through the prior foreclosure proceeding, have attempted to assert and collect the debt that is undoubtedly doing owing in this case from the Melorano's. And so that, again, I think that issue is one we would suggest is of no consequence because of the lack of standing, because of the case law that is consistently held, and because of the factual evidence that is before this court. I would agree with Your Honor, that if they had evidence, if there was something in the record to suggest that they were subjected to double liability, the cases have gone to that extent and said, okay. But we don't have any of that in the record in this case. And those other cases dealt with similar issues. Sprouse, Wolf, Grenadier, McGee, all dealt with very similar issues, and a laundry list of other cases that they cite therein, have all found consistently that a borrower in this situation, on this record, with these facts, does not have standing to come forward and contest and invade as an interloper the trust agreement when they don't have these competing interests coming at them trying to collect the debt at issue in this case. So I come full circle back to what we do have in the record, Your Honor. And what we do have in the record, Your Honor, is the note. Again, page 521 through 524 of the record in this case. We have a note that prima facially is properly endorsed on its face, the original of which was provided to the Superior Court 
We, again, we know that from the record that I've cited at pages 7 and 9 through 10 of the transcript of the record. We know the court examined the original note and, and, and found that the endorsements on the note itself were presumed as they are under the UCC to be valid and that there was nothing to suggest otherwise with regard to overcoming or rebutting that presumption. We do know with regard to the arguments of counsel that were made, that, argument, that counsel made a number of arguments, again, similar to the arguments that counsel made before Judge Bridges. We know that the decision of Judge Bridges does not have collateral estoppel or res judicata effect. We know that from the Supreme Court's decision and Judge Newby's decision in, in Ray Lux, wherein the court held that prior Chapter 45 judicial foreclosure proceedings do not have collateral estoppel or res judicata effect. Counsel has conceded that in argument. They conceded that in brief. Frankly, they conceded that. If you look at the transcript from the hearing before the Superior Court, at page 65 of the hearing, counsel acknowledged that that prior order essentially is of no consequence because in Ray Lux, 2016 case, no collateral estoppel, no, no res judicata effect of a Chapter 45 judicial foreclosure proceeding. So we look at what the evidence is in the arguments of counsel. First evidence or first argument had to do with staple holes. We set forth, and, and I can tell you honestly, Your Honors, I, I searched far and wide for this. I found the only case that I found was the Watson case that we cited in brief. Admittedly, it's a, not a North Carolina case, but it is a case that discussed the issue of staple holes in an allonge. And what the court said specifically on the issue was, uh, from a very logical standpoint, you have no way of making a copy of a note in a lounge unless you remove a staple from it. So staple holes in and of themselves do not create a material issue of facts for which you can dispute the validity or the presumption that is carried with the lounge and with the signatures on the lounge. The second argument the council made in brief and in, in, in support and underlying was that the lounge was done on First National Bank of Nevada letterhead. The allonge purports on its face to be assigned from First National Bank of Arizona to First National Bank of Nevada. So it, it, it goes to show that if, if First National Bank of Arizona endorsed it to Nevada, that Nevada might have drafted the allonge for signature on its letterhead. That, I would submit to the court, is not creating a material issue of fact that would thwart summary judgment in this case. Absent that, Your Honors, we look at In Re Bass, and what In Re Bass teaches us is that the signatures on the allonge are presumed to be valid. And absent some compelling evidence, not suggestions, not illusions, but evidence that the signatures on the allonge itself were not valid, we don't invade the province of the actual documents, the presumption itself. And, and, and my client need not come forward and, and, and frankly provide anything else. That's what the, the UCC says. That's what the presumption carries. That's what the documents have in themselves carrying the presumption of their validity. So that's what we had before the Superior Court. That's what the judge was looking at in terms of an evidentiary issue. Um, and that's the case law that we'd submit that supports the fact that they didn't have standing to raise this issue with regard to the lineage that is shown on the face of the note and the allonge itself. But this was not a Chapter 45 foreclosure proceeding. This was a judicial foreclosure proceeding filed under 1-339.1 and more so under Chapter 29A of the North Carolina General Statutes. And why do I raise that? I raise that because there are two ways to prove that you've got the ability to proceed with foreclosure under a judicial foreclosure proceeding. You can prove, as was referenced earlier, under 25-3-301 of the North Carolina General Statutes, that you're either a holder, and that's been, frankly, most of our discussion so far has been holder status. You can also prove that you're a non-holder with rights of a holder in possession. And that's the second prong of our argument, the second prong I believe of the argument that was made to the Superior Court. Um, and independent, it, 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 
shows the ability of my client to proceed forward with foreclosure in this case. And, and what's the evidence that was before the court? What's the evidence in the record of that? It's two things, frankly, Your Honor, that we've cited to. Uh, it is not only the assignment from, that was to Aurora, and that appears at page 647 of the record, but it's also the asset and purchase agreement between Aurora and NationStar, which would show the progression of the contractual rights from First National Bank of Arizona to NationStar. And if you look at the record on page 769, as we cited in our brief, it is the provision of the purchase and sale agreement between NationStar and Aurora, which provides NationStar with the rights that Aurora had. And we showed the assignment to Aurora, thus connecting the dots through from a contractual basis to show that my client had the contractual rights to proceed as a non-hold, as a, excuse me, as a non-holder. Again, if you don't feel satisfied with the holder status argument, as a non-holder, there's no dispute in fact in the record that my client had possession, appeared at the hearing, handed the original note up to the court with rights to proceed with the foreclosure in this case. I think the real issue is that council wants to conflate the issue of ownership and holdership into one issue, and, and they're really not. You don't have to be an owner to be a holder. And that's actually delineated specifically in 25.3-301. You can be a holder or you can be an owner but you don't have to be both. And so if council doesn't like the lineage of the endorsements on the note, that's fine. Then we just jump over to the non-holder argument and we look at how the contractual rights evolve through the non-holder side of things. But if council doesn't like the non-holder argument, they can't essentially have their cake and eat it too. They can't contest. Well, they can't say, well, we don't agree with regards to the lineage of the endorsements on the note, but we also don't agree with the contractual documents with regard to the assignments of the interest. Uh, we just don't agree with anything. And the question I think, yeah, apropos that, that Judge Griffin raised earlier is, is, well, if not us, then who? Back to your question earlier, Judge Collins, which is, has anyone else in 15 years come forward and suggested that they had any rights or interest in this note, in this deed of trust, in this loan? And the evidence in the record is clearly no. No party other than my client and its predecessor, Aurora, through the prior foreclosure proceeding, have come forward as evidence in the record and suggested, let alone asserted, that they had any rights in this note or in this loan such that they could seek collection against the borrowers, the Melorongos in this case. So let me ask a question. It sounds to me like we have contractual duties that go from FBNA to Aurora, Aurora to NationStar. Yes, Your Honor. We have a launch that goes from FBNA to FB Nevada. Yes, Your Honor. To Aurora, correct? Correct. And then, and then to NationStar. Aurora and blank. Aurora and blank. So what do we do? Do we just, are we just supposed to ignore the launch for purposes of the contractual argument and say, we don't really know why Nevada's there. We hope they don't come back. Well, I, I can answer that in, in, in two ways. Um, if you ignore the allonge, then it's as if it, it, it's of no consequence. And so you say, oh, well, I don't know what FBN, FNBN, First National Bank of Nevada, I don't know what interest they had. I'll get to that in a second because I can, I can answer that question. Um, and we see what is the lineage with regard to the contractual side of things, okay? But if we say, well, the allonge on its face is presumed valid. We have absolutely no evidence, and that, that's really the thing. There's no evidence that FBNA and FB, excuse me, FNBN did not have the authority. 
we don't have to come forward and uh, affirmatively prove that they had authority. The defendant, the borrower, has to come in and prove that we didn't have authority. That's, that's the presumption. They have to rebut the presumption here that we had authority to go ahead and assign it. Now, I will tell you, and the court is, I will admit, this is not in the record, um, but I will tell you that the court is well within its right to take judicial notice of this, that First National Bank of Arizona was acquired by First National Bank of Nevada. And the court can take judicial notice of that because that's a matter uh, that was handled by the FDIC, which is a governmental entity, and we believe and I believe, frankly, under the rules of evidence, that this court is well within its rights to take judicial notice of a, an action of a governmental entity that's not otherwise subject to dispute. So I, I want to answer your question both ways, Judge Collins, which is if you don't believe that they had any interest with regard to the allonge, then you've got the lineage contractually with regard to the assignment and the purchase and sale agreement. But if you otherwise find that they've not put forth any evidence to suggest that they haven't to rebut the presumption, then you've got in and of itself the allonge, which is, again, presumed valid on its face itself. And this is not dissimilar to the issue that the court faced in In Ray Bass. When counsel in that case came in and said, we just don't know who signed the endorsements. We don't have any evidence that they were authorized to sign the endorsements. Again, in that case, dealing also with stamps. And what the court said in Ray Bass is, they don't have to come forward and prove to you authority. It is presumed to be valid under the UCC that those endorsements are valid. You need to come forward with some type of affirmative evidence that would suggest that they didn't have the authority to go ahead and make that assignment, that they didn't have the ability to go ahead and make that assignment. And again, before, in the record right now, there, there's, there's no evidence that we know of that would suggest that that is, is the case. But again, even if it's the case, we fall back on the, okay, they're a non-holder, non and they've got contractual rights and are able to proceed forward. You, the, the arguments cannot be one and the same. They either rise and fall on one or rise and fall on the other, that's the issue in this case, which is every way you look at it, <clears throat> my clients have some right or interest that they're able to proceed forward with. And counsel, unfortunately, can't come forward, his clients can't come forward with anyone else that has any or asserted any contractual rights with regard to this loan, with regard to this note, with regard to this property, frankly, for which they are seeking collection or seeking to, to uh, uh, be paid. Uh, Your Honors, at the end of the day, uh, what we simply have before the court, I think, is an issue that has been, I think, vetted out thoroughly throughout the cases. We've discussed a lot of them here today. Um, I, I can appreciate the fact that counsel wants to talk about issues of, of trust endorsements I can appreciate the fact that counsel wants to uh, talk about issues with regards to authority, but I fall back on the, I think, the, the concepts that have been set forth in cases consistently, um, and frankly, I've not seen a case that counsel has cited in brief that would dispute the standing argument that we discussed with regard to their ability to invade and, and dispute, discuss the lineage of the, of the trust on, agreement. On your standing argument to defend, is it, you're just saying, you know, whoever owner, servicer, whoever's got the, the note, that's a, that's a battle between that crowd. But the debt is just, is there no matter what. The payments are there, the debt's there. Whatever problems y'all got on the, the ownership servicing side, that's a, that's a whole different column. Is that, is that what you're trying to? That's, that's what I'm saying, Judge. And, and again, if you look at the Wolf case, there's a, there's a large discussion about it, and the reason for it is, is very simple, which is regardless of dispute with regard to uh, the trust and whether or not the trust agreement was followed, the obligation of the Melorongos has never changed. They still have the same obligation to make payment under the note. 
So what happens if uh, if there's a dispute over ownership and they try to go after the Melanorongos? Is that how, how do they, are they able to defend themselves at that point? Well, again, that's the question Judge Collins raised earlier, I think, in our questioning. And um, I, I, I would concede that there is case law out there to suggest that if there are competing interests and there is evidence of competing interests, that that is potentially a defense from a standing perspective. But I would come back to the record in this case, which is, and again, that was, that was if you look at the In Ray Sprouse opinion from Judge Whitley in the Western District of North Carolina, uh, th there's a discussion of that as well. But I would come back to the record in this case, which is in the over decade long litigation that has occurred in this case, there has not been one reference to allusion, point of evidence, letter to suggest, let alone present evidence before the, the Superior Court, before this court, that that is in fact happening, that there are competing interests here, that they are subject to competing interests, they are subject to competing claims. The only thing that's before this court, the only thing that was before the Superior Court, and frankly, the only thing that's been before any court, is one party, previously Aurora, now my client having succeeded to the debt through the assignment and through the, the allonge, or excuse me, the blank endorsement on the note from Aurora, trying to collect on the debt. And so we've got to go back, I think, to the evidence before this court, the evidence that was before the Superior Court. And while, again, I will readily admit that the case law is out there, we don't have the facts that would support that argument, that would support moving forward to show that they've got standing under that scenario. So again, going back to your question, Judge Griffin, yeah, you leave them aside and let them dispute whatever they want contractually because you don't have rights in the contractual agreements between these parties in the trust agreement, okay? Your rights are with regard to the note and your obligations under the note, and there's been no uh, allegation in this case that those have ever changed, that they have ever been asked to pay anything more than they were obligated to pay when they entered into that note on April 11th, 2006. So. We believe that the Superior Court in this case got it right, Your Honors. There's no material issues in dispute in this case. That summary judgment was properly entered in favor of my client, allowing them to proceed to foreclose in this case, to realize upon a debt that, again, admittedly hasn't been paid and is doing owing for the November 1st, 2009 payment. And so we respectfully ask that this court affirm the entry of summary judgment in my client's favor, allowing the foreclosure to proceed allowing them their, also their contractual claim with regard to the debt at issue, the second claim in the complaint, and also summary judgment dismissing the affirmative claims on the counterclaim of the, of the uh, defendants in this case. I'm happy to answer any further questions. What's that? Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, briefly, with regard to the statements that counsel made with, for the cases that they cited, and he specifically referenced the Sprouse and McGee cases, both of those cases, I have to correct myself, they do arise out of North Carolina, but none of them discuss any North Carolina law. The Sprouse case has no reference to any North Carolina law. The McGee case only references federal law. So again, I stand by, by, by the statement that I made before that all of the federal cases that they cite deal with none of the controlling law of this, of this jurisdiction that, that well, from this court and from the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Um, the, with regard to the presumption of validity argument that Mr. Deke made, um, again, we disagree we, that, with that position because of the fact that this allonge contains an endorsement from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora when the undisputed evidence in this case is that Aurora obtained this, their rights in this, in this note with an allonge from First National Bank of Arizona. So the fact that that, that that endorsement does not comport with the remaining evidence in this case, and there's nothing to support that First National Bank of Nevada had any authority to endorse this note, believe that rebuts the presumption that this, that this is a valid endorsement and that that under Bass kicks the burden back to them to prove that this is. Because again, the law of North Carolina is, is if they're the last transferee 
they have to show that this note has been endorsed by every previous holder, properly endorsed by every previous holder. That's the holding of this court in, in the Leistor Bank case. Um, the, and the one thing I'll point out with regard to, additionally with regard to the presumption of validity of this, of this allonge, uh, I want to point out one thing that, was, that we've set forth in our reply brief, and that is that the evidence in this case from Aurora's database their, their official images of the Allonge from, two time, from May of 2007 and July of 2021, and this is on the document exhibits pages 504 to 509 is the testimony. They produced, Aurora produced images of this Allonge in two different times, of, of four years apart, and they're two different documents. The Allonge is not the same document that Aurora acknowledges or claims to be the Allonge in this case. And counsel for plaintiff testified that yes, those in fact are two different documents. Again, a document exhibit pages 504 to 509. And the last thing with regard, I've only got about a minute, the last thing with regard to the non-holder status, the contractual rights that they're asserting under this assignment to Aurora, it needs to be pointed out to the court that that assignment from Aurora is an assignment of the deed of trust. And that assignment to Aurora, as they refer to it, is an assignment from First National Bank of Arizona to Aurora. Yet the note, which they are required to enforce in order to obtain a judgment on the debt, that's what they have to enforce in this case in order to obtain a judgment and then get a decree to foreclose. That's from First National Bank of Nevada to Aurora. So their contractual rights that they're asserting under this assignment come from First National Bank of Arizona to Aurora, which is exactly what Aurora has said. But yet this note that they have an obligation to enforce under the UCC a proper negotiation requires that it be endorsed by the previous holder because this is an endorsement, this is a restrictive endorsement because it's to them directly. So I disagree with their position with regard to that. So if there's no further questions, I see my time is out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel, for your excellent arguments. We will take it under advisement. Clerk.